Hey friends, this is the last in our four-part series on the physics of cosmic rays. So far, we've learned what cosmic rays are, where they come from, and how our atmosphere converts them into muons. Today, we'll explore the geophysical implications of all those muons hitting Earth all the time. On a personal note, I'm pretty excited to tell you this story because the main paper behind it written by a couple of Caltech scientists back in 2003, is really what got me into studying particle physics in the first place. I stumbled into it by accident as part of an undergraduate seminar in technical writing, uh, a required course to get my physics degree. Muons and cosmic rays led me to the study of particle physics, which led me to the study of quantum field theory, which led me to graduate school, and eventually, to here. The full story involves a historic stone building, a T-Rex fossil, a disgruntled nuclear engineering student, and like a whole lot of other stuff, but I'll save all that for another time. If you listened to our last miniseries on helium and the alpha particle, you might remember just how much the geophysics of our Earth is shaped by particle physics. Today gives us another fun example. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Field Guide to Particle Physics. This is your informal guide to the subatomic ecosystem that we're all immersed in. Our atmosphere is one gigantic filter for cosmic rays. The sparse molecules near the top of our atmosphere begin the process of catching the energy of those energetic particles from space and transferring it into heat or muons. These cosmogenic muons typically make it all the way down to the surface of the Earth. And near the surface, the atmosphere is a lot thicker, but it's still just a collection of ballistic molecules bashing into each other at a thousand miles per hour. Some of those molecules hit us and some hit the ground we perceive these molecular impacts as air pressure. By contrast, cosmogenic muons are moving through this mess at over 600 million miles per hour. To those muons, the surface of the Earth is barely noticeable. They fly straight through it, like they fly straight through a lot of things, like hundreds of meters of rock, oceans, plants, animals, before colliding or decaying. By contrast, those particles of atmospheric gas typically reflect off the surface of the Earth. Rocks just aren't that permeable to most gases. As we explained in the Alpha Particle miniseries, helium gas generated from radioactive decay deep within the Earth collects underground, trapped by rocks. One thing that gas can permeate, though, is surface water. Quite a bit of our atmospheric gases gets dissolved into the ocean. Oxygen in the water allows the fish to breathe too, once dissolved, so that it can be picked up by their gills. Increased carbon dioxide levels also imply more CO2 gets put underwater. When the water on Earth's surface freezes, as it might do near the polar ice caps, it traps some of that dissolved gas with it. This has been happening for millions of years, and until somewhat recently at least, that ice has been compounding. New ice forms above, pushing old ice down. And this has resulted in a lot of ice on Earth. In Antarctica, there are areas where the ice is over 4 kilometers deep. That's miles of ice. Greenland also carries some massive glaciers 2 or 3 kilometers deep, built up in the same fashion. 
The gases trapped in that glacial ice is a frozen relic of an older atmosphere. The deeper the ice, the older the dissolved gases. As the mixture of molecules in our atmosphere changes over time, it sets down a record in the glacial ice. The deepest ice, millions of years old, can tell us what the atmosphere was like millions of years ago. And extracting that ice is quite the scientific adventure. Now, this is all easy to say in theory, but the practice of science requires a lot of gory technical detail. Different measurements from different samples of ice at different depths from different parts of the world need to be calibrated. Ice can form at different rates in different places under different conditions at different times. But at least averaged over a given year or decade or so, the atmosphere should be well mixed. The concentrations of different kinds of molecules should be the same. Huge weather patterns around the Earth mix the air, ensuring that the atmosphere at the South Pole is more or less the atmosphere at the North Pole. And so the scientific logic goes like this. Assuming older ice is usually below the younger ice, and the atmosphere is well mixed, then given any two ice sheets on Earth, there should be a way to compare them. The concentrations of different gases dissolved at different times should sequentially be the same. Like multicolored stripes on a pole, the stripes may be different sizes, but they should be in the same order. If we can find the same sequences in gas concentrations across different ice sheets, then we can start to put together a history of the Earth's atmosphere. Near the turn of the 21st century, geophysicists were working on exactly this problem. They were trying to calibrate the gas concentrations trapped in ancient ice samples by comparing ice from Antarctica with Greenland. But things just weren't adding up. The sequences didn't align perfectly. Gas concentrations in small pockets were just too different. There was some kind of missing variable in the data. And as it turned out, that variable involves cosmic rays. To understand how cosmogenic muons resolves this paleoclimatology puzzle, we need to go back to the source, the source of cosmic rays. In episode two of this series, we talked about Fermi acceleration, the process by which electrically charged particles like protons get accelerated to outrageous velocities by shock waves in astrophysical plasmas. And shock waves occur in glacial ice, too. To understand shock waves, let's think about sound waves. Sound usually travels in the atmosphere like a wave, a wave of air pressure. Those atmospheric particles slam against each other in an organized and oscillating way, spreading out away from the source. That's what we call sound. The speed of those sound waves depends on the amount and types of molecules present, as well as the overall temperature of the atmospheric gas. The sound waves we experience travel at around 343 meters per second, which is about 767 miles per hour. But here's the thing, though. Humans routinely fly supersonic jets that travel faster than that. Supersonic jets, like fighter jets, travel faster than the speed of sound. They travel faster than the noise that they create. You cannot hear them coming until they're already past you. And when you finally do hear them, it's a tremendous racket. It's a shockwave, actually, that you hear. The particles of air are being disturbed faster than the speed of sound. 
In some sense, the sound waves that are produced kind of pile up upon each other, forming a shock front or a wall of air pressure that some folks call a sonic boom. It's a wall of energy collected by atmospheric particles moving far from equilibrium. This wall is similar to those plasma shock waves that accelerated cosmic rays deep in outer space. The important point here is that the shock wave was generated by something moving faster than the normal waves could. The jet was moving faster than the speed of sound. As we'll see now, another kind of shock wave, one driven by cosmogenic muons, is responsible for disrupting the gases dissolved in ancient ice. So fighter jets move faster than the noise they make. Well, that's a nice trick to kind of sneak up on folks, but we have radar. And radar works by using radio waves, electromagnetic or light waves with really long wavelengths, reflecting it off of objects. So unless the fighter jet is moving faster than the speed of light, we can still see it coming. But this whole idea presents kind of a fun riddle. Question, when does the speed of light not equal the speed of light? Answer, when it is slower than the speed of light. Question, when is the speed of light slower than the speed of light? Answer, when light moves through water, or glass, or you guessed it, ice. Wait, what? Glass, like water, reflects and refracts light. You can typically tell when there's water in a glass, or when you're underwater swimming, or when you're looking through a window. The light coming through them behaves kind of funny. Things just look different. A straw inside your glass of water usually looks disconnected from the part of it that's outside the water. We usually say that water bends light. In physics class, we say that it refracts it. And this happens because light slows down a lot when it's inside water, or glass, or ice. And by a lot, I mean like 30%. Microscopically, at least, at the level of photons, of course, this is silly. The speed of light is a constant. It's not light that's moving through water. It's not a pure collection of photons, per se. It's something else, something that connects with light, and that comes out as light on the other side. And if this all sounds a little wild, hey, don't panic. It has a very simple physical analogy. Imagine being inside your home when a supersonic jet flies by. The shock wave of that sonic boom slams into your walls, shaking the windows and rattling your doors. Did the sound you hear come from the molecules in the air? Well, yeah, sure, but the molecules of air inside your house. The molecules from the sonic boom in the atmosphere slammed into your walls and windows, which in turn shook themselves. They vibrated in place. They vibrated in such a way that they shook the air molecules in your room. And that's the sound that made it to your ears. Inside or outside, the sonic boom sounded basically the same, a bit muffled inside for sure, but otherwise the same. The sound waves from the air outside were transferred to the air inside through the physical materials of your house. Inside the glass of water, the electromagnetic energy is still moving. It's just now tangled up with all the electromagnetic fields of all the molecules and their electrons moving inside the fluid the resulting excitations, the slower light waves, if you like, aren't really made up of photons. They're collective excitations of an electromagnetic disturbance passing through. But once on the other side, they spit out photons again. 
The error, of course, also has an index of refraction, so this is something of a simplification, but hopefully the point is clear. It's not pure photons that are traveling through the water, the glass, or ice. It's something else. And that something else, those quasi-particles, don't move quite as fast as light. They move a lot slower. 30% slower. Cosmogenic muons travel at 99.4% of the speed of light, typically. But light, or quasi-particles that appear as light anyway, moves 30% slower in water or ice. So in water, you cannot see those cosmogenic muons coming. Effectively, they're moving faster than the speed of light. And that's troubling because they carry an electric charge. As you might recall from some of our earliest episodes, electrically charged particles like the muon transfer energy with each other by exchanging photons. Therefore, cosmogenic muons moving through an electromagnetically dense medium like glacial ice or water are creating distortions in that electromagnetic field faster than those distortions can propagate as waves. In short, cosmogenic muons create electromagnetic shock waves in water, in glass, or in ice, just like with the fighter jets whose sound waves piled up into a sonic boom, the cosmogenic muons create an electromagnetic disturbances in the ice that pile up to create a shock wave of light. Or, you know, quasi-particles of light inside the ice or water or whatever. Traditionally, these electromagnetic shock waves are called Cherenkov radiation. Cherenkov radiation is famous for the eerie blue glow it gives to the water inside of radioactive cooling ponds near nuclear reactors. It appears blue, but the shockwaves are mostly in the ultraviolet, or the UV spectrum. UV photons, or their associated quasi-particles, have a bit higher energy than visible light. And if there's one thing we know about ultraviolet light, it's that it's powerful enough to burn our skin and our eyes. That's because it's powerful enough to break down chemical bonds between organic molecules. Sunburn, anybody? So, given that, can you guess what the difference is between Greenland ice and Antarctic ice? Organic molecules. Frozen plant matter. Greenland's got it, Antarctica doesn't. Surrounded by water and much closer to life as we know it, Greenland ice has much more contaminants than the center of Antarctica, which, though covered in ice, is effectively a desert. In a 2003 paper published in Geophysics Review Letters entitled In Situ Photalysis of Deep Ice Core Contaminants by Cherenkov Radiation of Cosmic Origin, the authors Augustin Colissi and Michael Hoffman argued that an unexplained excess of carbon monoxide gas trapped inside glacial ice was consistent with the disintegration of tiny little bits of plant matter that were present in the Greenland ice by Cherenkov radiation induced by the flux of cosmic rays. Remember, cosmic rays are coming at well over 100 cosmic rays per square meter per second, all over the Earth. It's a little bit more, actually, near the poles. In 2007, those authors, together with Marcelo Guzman, now at the University of Kentucky, published a follow-on study describing concrete chemical mechanisms that could generate carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide from cosmic rays. While protected from the sun's natural ultraviolet rays by layers upon layers of ice, atmospheric gases from well over a thousand years ago are still exposed to the penetrating flux of muons from cosmic rays. 
and the electromagnetic shockwaves of those ridiculously fast muons, their Cherenkov radiation, constantly exposes trapped tiny bits of organic matter in the ice to tiny bits of ultraviolet radiation. Just enough, as it turns out, to rip a few carbon atoms off of some big frozen organic molecules to mix with the otherwise trapped historical atmospheric gas. Like adventure, my friends, elementary particles are everywhere. Go and seek them out. Thanks for listening. This has been an installment of the Field Guide to Particle Physics, a copyrighted production of the Poseidon Institute. Thank you so much for listening. For a full, free, online copy of the Field Guide, please visit our website at poseidon.org or follow us on Instagram. We've got a lot of other resources for you there. At the Poseidon Institute, we're on a mission to build and share physics knowledge without barriers. Come learn with us. 